I think if we're going to communicate with the culture where it is in our day, we have to address two main points. I mean, there are hundreds, perhaps thousands of individual questions. I think if we're going to communicate with the culture where it is in our day, we have to address two main points. I mean, there are hundreds, perhaps thousands of individual questions that come up in philosophy and in theology and in debates, and they have to be addressed. But the two critical questions that we have to address are, first of all, the existence of God, and second of all, the trustworthiness of the Scripture. Because if we can establish the existence of God and the trustworthiness of sacred Scripture, 90% of the work of the defense of, of Christianity has been solved. Amen. I think if, if we're going to communicate... Project, it's what we're doing in our lighthouses. And uh, you have on the back of your bulletin a list of cell groups, lighthouses that you can get into. We encourage you to get into one this week and get in there and start seeing the information that's available and, and let it transform your life. Uh, could I just ask real quick, cell leaders that are with us this morning, would you just stand? These are the people who are listed on the back of that sheet. And uh, you can plug into any one of them, connect with them after the service and say, I'd like to be in your group. You look like a handsome or beautiful person. and uh, Or at least find out. Have them coach you on what their group looks like and, and where it is and the time and that sort of thing. Just one correction. On the back of your bulletin, it says that this girl right here in the middle, Jessica, has a family cell, her and her husband, Josh. And uh, it says it's at 6.30 a.m. That is not true. It's at 6 o'clock p.m. on Thursday. I think maybe that's why nobody's coming yet to that one. That's a little early. Okay, thank you. You can be seated. Let's give them a hand. Praise the Lord. Great leaders. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, you can turn with me this morning as we launch in 2 Timothy chapter 3. As R.C. was saying, this is a, a direct excerpt from the Truth Project presentation this week in Cells, that if we're going to answer all the other hundreds of questions people have about how to know God, we have to start in one place and answer two major questions to begin. 2 Timothy chapter 3. The first one, is there a God? Now, I think there's plenty of proof for that, and people want us to try and prove that God exists. And one of the greatest proofs for the existence of God, ready, is your changed life. You, we, we want to prove that Jesus is alive from the dead, then they just need to see it in us. If they knew us before, and they know us after, and they see the transformation of your life because of knowing Christ, that is one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection that exists today. And uh, you and I need to carry that right everywhere we go. And the life of God demonstrated through us. I mean, our life changes when we come to Christ. As these in the encounter were experiencing hardcore and, and zeroed in on. When we come to the cross, it's not just to add Jesus to the many other things that exist in the world to our life. It's not just to patch a little, have a dollar ninety-five of Jesus on my cheek. You know, or to get a nice little tattoo or some, wear a cross around my neck and say, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I've added Jesus to my life. No, we yield over our lives. He comes in and invades the territory, wiping out the sin and the record of sins of our past, takes them away from us, gives us a brand new life, and it all starts new. Amen. That is the proof of the resurrection. Another proof of the resurrection for me is all the early apostles. Every one of them died as a martyr for Jesus. Now, people don't die for another person if it's not real. Amen? It might be a mistake if they do it. 
But in this case, every one of them said, we're going to go all the way to the limit of the name witness. The Bible says if you're a witness, you're a martus, which is where we get the word martyr. Is that you believe so solidly in what you're saying that you're willing to put your life on the line. Not just testify about it and be a witness, but to put your life on the line. And every one of them did it. And even today, all over the world, people are giving their lives for the name of Jesus. Because He's real. Because He's risen from the dead and He lives in us. And so there's proof of the existence of God every, every place you turn. Uh, the second piece that he says we have to cover is the veracity or the truthfulness of Scripture. Second Timothy chapter 3.16 says clearly, All Scripture, how much? All. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. How much Scripture? All. That's the whole book, amen? The whole book. And, uh, you know, I probably never quit saying this because I stole it from Zig Ziglar. We believe in the Bible all the way from Genesis to maps. maps. (laughs) I like that. It's right there. And then right all the way to concordance. Anyway. All Scripture is written is God-breathed. That's literally the background Greek word. It was breathed by God. And Peter says for us that holy men of God wrote as they were moved on by the Holy Spirit. This is not automatic writing. This isn't mysterious or spooky. It is that God inspired His own Word. He breathed it into the lives of the writers. And all of them have given us in 66 books, which we call the canon of Scripture, a continuing story and revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. There's some that have said, you know, it's real easy when you read the Bible. Look for the scarlet thread. That is the bloodline. Look for the bloodline of Jesus. Even when you're reading genealogies, you're going to find that this one led to that one, to that one, to that one, to that one, because the one at the end of the chain was the one that was going to lead to the Messiah. That's why those genealogies are in there, to show us the scarlet thread that leads all the way to Christ. So I've got it down. You've got it down. All Scripture. This book is breathed by God, and it's for our benefit. And I want to tell you this morning seven ways of how to know God. It's not usually my kind of style to announce seven things, but I'm going to do it. And I already did. But the first one, the way to know God, is through this book, through His Word. Turn with me to John chapter 5. Let's hear the words of Jesus Himself when He was talking to the Jews. In fact, in verse 16, it says, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus. They sought to kill him because he had done some things on the Sabbath. They were always trying to kill him for the truth. And Jesus begins to speak to them in verse 19. And he starts this long. If you happen to have a red letter Bible, you'll see that it's red from there all the way down to the end of the chapter. He's talking to the Jews. And when he gets to verse 39, he says this to them. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Now stop just for a minute and think about this. If you were to grab the New Testament and, and pinch it closed all together, the, and the other side would be the Old Testament, right? New Testament, Old Testament. Jesus saying, you search the Scriptures. This is the only Scriptures they had, the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures because they testify about me. That tells me this whole book is about Jesus. Now I understand there's history and poetry and all kinds of other things in here that, that uh, lend to the story and the storyline, but it all is there to point us to Christ. 
Jesus says to them, you search the scriptures, you're the leaders, you're the students of the Bible, of the Old Testament and the covenants, and you search them because you believe out of them you're going to get eternal life. It says to you the Messiah is coming. It says to you redemption of Israel is coming. Peace is going to reign. He's going to raise up a leader, a prophet like Moses. All of these prophecies are there and you look at them and you study them because they bring you to the point of believing you're going to have eternal life. But look at verse 40. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. They have the very answer to all the scriptures standing right in front of them. They have the manifestation of God, the Son of God. God in the flesh is the one talking to them. He says, you search the scriptures to find out about eternal life and it's all pointing to me. And here I stand and you won't come to me. There's a difference between knowing God through his word and knowing God. There are lots of students of Scripture. There are lots of divinity schools across our nation in particular that teach all kinds of stuff about the Bible. They'll teach history. They'll bring up archaeology. They'll talk about the prophecies and how they were fulfilled or not fulfilled. And they'll talk about all kinds of things, but they don't know Jesus. I did a wedding at Duke University Chapel, which made me nervous because I'd never been there. Duke University, it's a pretty prestigious place. And uh, I, so I called up, I said, hey, you know, how big is the chapel? And they immediately said, oh, you've not been here. I said, no, I've never been to the campus. I've never been to that part of the country. I said, well, you need to go online and look. I mean, this chapel is so big, it's got three pipe organs in it. One in the front, one in the back, and one in the left wing. I mean, they had to put chairs up close to the chancel or whatever they call it, so that the people in the wedding wouldn't be a hundred yards back. It was incredible. And as we were walking into this huge chapel, I mean, it was built to reflect the glory of God. Somebody said to me, see that building on the right? I said, yeah. They said, that's the divinity school. I said, really? It's a huge building. They said, one thing you'd never want to do is go there. (laughs) Because they'll talk you out of your faith by the time they're done. And I thought these seats of higher learning have fell off what they were teaching. And Jesus is saying to these Jews, listen, you study the scriptures. You know them, right? Backwards, forwards, and you quote them to your friends, and you wear your phylacteries on your wrists and your forehead, and you go to all the synagogues, and you're in the Sabbath services, and you know all this stuff, but here's life standing right in front of you, and you're trying to kill me. You're rejecting the summary of the truth. But you and I, hopefully, know a little better that when we read this book, It helps us to know God. In here, he tells us how he feels. He demonstrates his actions. He tells us of his ways and his methods. He tells us what brings him delight and what causes him to feel hurt. Amen? So this is how one of the ways we know God is by knowing what he says. Reading the book. Um, If you ever lead somebody to Jesus, and you will, and you will soon, say, I will soon. Amen? (laughs) That's a command, by the way. No, we should be leading people to Jesus, but boy, when you get them to Jesus and you get them a new Bible or they've got one of their own that they find and they dust off and they get it busy, you don't tell them to start in Genesis. Right? I mean, they need to know Jesus in the New Testament. They need to read those Gospels and get in the book of Acts and hear about the early church. And They need to hear what Jesus has to say. Don't start them off and lose them by Leviticus. Amen? It just doesn't work well that way. I'm not saying it's not important. As I've already said, it is important. But it is this word that we need to study to know God. Number two, the way we know God is through faith. 
Hebrews chapter 11, we know is what the Bible calls the, the, the hall of faith. We call it the hall of faith. It's the chapter of faith. Lots of chapters in the Bible come to mind when we think of different subjects, like 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Well, this is the faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. And it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand. I'd love to just parentheses that. By faith we understand a lot. In this case it says we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. The things that we see today, terra firma here and all the universe was not made out of something we could see. God spoke and there it was. His power, His person made that happen. And we accept that by faith. There comes a point when we have to step across the line and say, I'm going to believe in something I haven't seen. I'm going to touch the spiritual realm by an act of faith. I'm going to trust that God is true to His Word, and I'm going to lean the full weight of my trust upon Him and what He says. Verse 6 says this, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. To know God, we have to come by faith. We can't just do it with knowledge. We can't do it by mental assent. We can't do it because God proved himself to me uh, conclusively by these mathematic or scientific equations. There he is. Therefore, I believe. You still have to step across a line that says, I'm going to touch something that is untouchable in the three-dimensional world. Faith has to come in our heart. It doesn't come just in our mind. It's a spirit dimension thing that says, I believe in what I've never seen. So much so that I'm going to lean the full weight of my trust on him and that if he moves, I fall. Amen? Faith. How we know God? We know him by faith. We know him through his word. We know him by faith. Number three. Here's a powerful one. And I'm going to spend most of my time right here in number three. We know God through the names of God. The names of God. There's a vast amount of truth that's revealed through the various names of God used in the Bible. By these names, at different times with different groups and different individuals, he would unfold another facet of his character and demonstrate to the person in the moment who he was and how he is. And uh, I want to give you about seven of those in a minute. Actually, I'm going to give you 14 of them, but I thought if I told you that up front, you'd go, oh my gosh, that's too many. So... How about I give you two sets of seven? But there are three uh, basic names for God in the scripture. Elohim, or as we would call El. And you don't have to memorize all this. It's a great lesson. But Elohim means the strong one. Uh, Another name, Adonai, in the original, means master. Adonai, master. We say Jehovah for the third one, which means the self-existent one. Now, out of these three, El, Elohim, Adonai, and Jehovah, there are compound names by which God reveals himself. I'm going to give you seven of them. If you want to write them down, that's great. You can actually go to the website for ChristianCenter.org and go to the Lighthouse Keepers login page, and there's a place where you can click on that for this week's notes, and you can steal all the notes for free. They're all written out there for you, okay? So if you lose track, don't yell at me to go back. You can get them, and I'll give you a copy. Number one, Lord God. Now, let me tell you this, too, about your Bible, perhaps. Certain kinds of Bibles do it differently. 
But you may notice when you're reading your Bible and you see a place where it says the Lord God. And interestingly enough, the whole Lord and God are of all capital letters. You get to another place, they'll say the Lord. It'll be a capital L, little O-R-D. Okay, you with me? Some other places, all lowercase. They have taken the time in translating into English to try and differentiate the use of these different names for God by demonstrating to us in the way they capitalize or don't capitalize his name. Isn't that interesting? Maybe you didn't know that. If you read the introduction to your Bible, it might tell you that. And it'll say, if you see it this way or in italics or that way, it means Adonai or it means Elohim or, or it is one of the compound names for God. The first one, the Lord God, all caps, if you will. Jehovah Elohim means the self-existent strong one. So you take two of these and you put them together and it's his name, the self-existent strong one. You want to know God? Here's a piece of his character. He is self-existent. He doesn't depend on anybody else. He wasn't created by anybody and nobody can take him out. Amen? He is self-existent. And in fact, the New Testament tells us everything we see has its being because of God. It's there because he made it and he sustains it. That's our God. Hallelujah. Number two, most high or most high God. El Elyon, God the highest. Genesis 14, 18. If you're taking notes, I didn't give you the scripture, Genesis 2-4 on the first one. Number three, the Lord God again. Only now Lord is not capitalized. This is, but, but the word God is. And it's Adonai Jehovah. Means the master, Adonai, who is self-existent. Combination name, Genesis 15-2. Four, Almighty God, El Shaddai. This one, I mean, songs have been written. Putting these, if you listen to a lot of the worship tunes, you'll find songs where they've woven these names in because it has a meaning in that song in that moment. Remember a song that's been a long time. I'm, I'm old enough to go back a couple of years, I think. But there was real popular, El Shaddai. And uh, I'm wanting to start singing it, but I don't want to embarrass myself again. I do it often enough without singing. Giver of strength, El Shaddai. Giver of strength. Genesis 17, 1. Number 5, everlasting God, El Olam, the eternally existent one. That's different than the self-existent one, because it says he's the eternally existent one. Wouldn't it be something to write all these out and connect them all? The self-existent, eternally self-existent, powerful, almighty, most high. That's our God. And he has revealed himself to us through the different names by which he's been known over the centuries. Number six, mighty God, El Gibor, the powerful one, Isaiah 9, 6. And there's a whole passel of names in verse 6 of Isaiah 9. He shall be called Wonderful, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, right? And right in the middle of that, mighty God, El Gibor, the powerful one, number seven, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth, the self-existent supreme commander of all the heavenly forces. First Samuel 1.3, the self-existent supreme commander of all the heavenly forces. One day you're going to meet him face to face. And all these things and all these names are going to be powerfully understood in an instant. You're going to say, my God. And you'd be like Thomas. When Jesus showed up and said, here, Thomas, I know you've been having a little problem with this whole package, so why don't you put your hands right here in my holes? And what does he do? He doesn't reach out his finger and start to do what he said he wanted to do. He said, I'm not going to do it until I can do that. 
I'm not going to believe until I see him and I can put my finger in those holes you're talking about, boys. Jesus shows up and says, well, Thomas. And what does he do? Falls on his knees. And he says, my Lord and my God. And in that breath of all the humanness that we have, we're going to collect these names and express them in an instant. Say, you are the supremely self-eternal existent one. You are the commander of all the heavenly hosts. You are my Savior. And we may be only able to say in our little puny English words, Oh, Lord, my God. And we'll mean it. It won't just be because you dropped a rock on your foot. Oh, oh, my God. You know? Some people groups use that as a phrase generally. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. But uh, there's going to be a day when it's going to take on new meaning. Let me give you seven additional ones if the first seven wasn't enough. These are all compound names that you're familiar with probably. Come from the using the name Jehovah first. And you can help me through them. Number one, Jehovah Jireh. What does it mean? The Lord shall provide. The story is Abraham and Isaac. And God has told Abraham to offer Isaac as a, as a sacrifice on an altar. He says, Isaac, we're going to go over to the mountain. We're going to leave the servants here. We're going to go up on this mountain. We're going to offer a burnt offering. Isaac says, great, Dad. We love to worship God, don't we? This is awesome. Let's go. And uh, they put the wood on. And as they're walking, Isaac says, Dad, uh, we don't have an animal for the burnt sacrifice. Dad hasn't told him about the rest of the story yet. He says, oh. That's okay, Isaac. The Lord himself will provide a sacrifice for the burnt offering. And up the hill they go, and they get the altar ready, and the wood on it, and and he takes his son and puts him on there. I'm sure that was an abrupt moment for Isaac. And uh, he pulled the knife back, and just as he's about to kill his son, because he believed that God could raise him from the dead, he knew this was the only seed. Again, the scarlet thread was coming through this young man. He had to live because out of him would come the seed of Christ. He said, well, if God tells me to kill him, God's got a plan to raise him from the dead. And so he pulled back the knife, and the angel of the Lord said, stop. God's seen your heart. And Abraham spins around and sees a ram caught in a thicket by his, by his horns. And he goes over and gets the ram out, and they offer the ram in the place of his son, Isaac. And he says in Genesis, chapter 22, and verse 14, he says, this will ever forever be called on the mountain of the Lord, the Lord will provide. Amen. When you're living on the mountain of the Lord, when you live in the high places of God, He will take care of you. And we have taken from this moment out of Abraham's lips when God was revealed to him as Jehovah Jireh, the provider. We take from that a practical principle that tells us if God never changes, He is still Jehovah Jireh. And when I have a need... And I go up to the mountain of the Lord and I present myself before Him. And I'm not saying you got to be religious or actually go find a mountain. You might want to do that by faith or something. Go climb a mountain, stand up and say, God, here I am. And I've done it plenty of times. It's not required. You know, we don't have to emulate exactly what happened in the Scriptures. But we can go before God and however we get there, in that high place of being with God, and say, God, now for me, be Jehovah Jireh. Some of you need jobs. Amen? The economy's tough. Some of you are losing things. And... Uh, you might get stripped of some things you don't really need, and that'd be a blessing to you. You know, you wouldn't have to maintain all that stuff you got. I better not preach too long here. I see. I'm not being welcomed by this moment. But you need work? He is Jehovah Jireh. He can create work out of nothing and get it to you and make sure you're on time where it is. If you'll walk with Him. Don't get panicky. Don't freak out. Don't lose faith. 
because the situation around you is unstable. Stand on the rock, Christ Jesus, and say, hey, this is Jehovah Jireh. This is the provider. The Lord will provide. Number two, Jehovah Rapha. And I'll go a little quicker on the rest of these. As you see the, how the name comes together, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals you. Rapha is the word to literally weave back together when we're broken. He weaves us back together. He takes what exists of us and weaves it back together. You might think of stitches, how they do that and put us back together when we have a major cut or a wound or a surgery. And they, they, they just put the two ends together and clip it there so that it begins to weave itself back together and you get a scar out of that. But Jehovah Rapha, the children of Israel come to the waters and uh, the waters are they can't drink them. They're poison, and they cry out, "We're gonna, we're gonna die of thirst out here in the desert." Moses, what are we gonna do? And here they do what Israelites do best: complain. And um, as they're complaining, he says, "God, what are we gonna do?" And God touches the waters and heals the water. They become sweet. Everybody can drink. And then the Lord uses the moment with the whole nation and says, "This he says here, I'm gonna make a covenant with you in this moment that if you'll listen to me and you'll follow my ways and you'll stay close to me with your heart." then I will be to you Jehovah Rapha, the one who heals you, not just the water. How much water is in you, do you know? About 70%. Uh-huh. If we put a little spigot down there and drain, you'd be this little flimsy little thing, <laughs> little, like a balloon with nothing in it. 70% water. If God can heal the waters in the ground, He can heal the waters of our spirit, man, and our soul and our body. He is Jehovah Rapha. How do you come to know God? This is one of the ways. You look at His names and you see the reflection and the demonstration of His character to you. He is to me, Jehovah Jireh. He is to me, Jehovah Rapha. He is to you, number three, Jehovah Nisi. The Lord my banner. The Lord my banner. I love this story. God says, Moses, you got to fight today. You got to get the guys out on the battlefield. They got to fight. And he says, okay. And he sends them into the fight. And God says, now Moses, you stand up on the hill. And every time you raise your hand, they're going to win. So Moses says, okay, faith. I'm going to do what I don't know how it works. I'm just going to do it. So he raises his hands. And the, the battle starts moving. The Israelites are taking the battle. It's great. And it, Moses gets tired. He goes, puts his hands down. The battle starts going the other way. He goes, whoa. Puts his hands up. The battle starts moving in the favor of Israel. Puts his hands down. Here comes the battle back at him. Aaron and her are standing next door, right? And they go, hey, you got this figured out yet? Great, let's do it. They grab a rock. They put a rock there and they set Moses down on it. Aaron gets on one side. Her gets on the other side. And they hold his hands up. And the battle goes forward. That's where we get the principle of having accountability partners and people who will stand with you in the faith. You don't just do it alone. Amen. That's a different message, though. But here is Moses. And God reveals himself to the children of Israel, to Moses, to Aaron and Hur. He says, he is Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner. He's the one that is over us. I love it. You know, when you learn these things and you come into a worship service, they're singing songs and people begin to lift their hands. Scripture starts coming. Oh, Jehovah Nisi, he's our banner. His banner over us, there was a song written, his banner over us is love. And let's not minimize it just to that. That's true. And it's warm and emotional and touchy-feely. But hey, this is the God of battle. He is our banner. When we march out, we lift up. He becomes Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. Number four, Jehovah Shalom. Come on, you can guess it. Shalom. Peace. Lord, 
send peace. By the way, did I give you the scripture references? I'm having fun telling the stories. Number one, Jehovah Jireh, Genesis 22, 8 and 14. Number two, Jehovah Rapha, Exodus 15, 26. Number three, Jehovah Nisi, Exodus 17, 15. Number four, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord send peace, Judges 6, 24. Gideon. Gideon, I want you to be the leader of my people. Hey, me? I'm hiding in the wine press. I'm scared out of my socks what's going on around here. He says, yeah, but you got to come out of there and you got to lead for me. He says, why would you pick me? I am the least in my family. And our family is the least in our tribe, in our clan. And our clan is the least in our tribe. And our tribe is the least of all the tribes. I mean, I'm like the bottom of the barrel here. Why pick me? The same reason God picked you, by the way. Which is? It's because he wanted to. He's God. He loved you because he wanted to. And the Lord said... In verse 23 of Judges 6, the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Because he had said he was sitting talking to God face to face. He said, Uh-oh. I've seen God face to face. I'm going to die. Because unholiness doesn't stand in the presence of holiness and live. I'm going to die. And the Lord speaks to him and reveals another facet of his character and nature. He says, Hey, peace be with you. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it The name of the altar, the Lord is peace. Jehovah Shalom. To this day, it's still in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Number five, Jehovah Roe, the Lord, my shepherd. Isaiah 40, verse 11. He shall lead his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead those that are with young. This is a prophetic picture of Christ, Isaiah 40:11. He is the good shepherd. We know in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. And God reveals himself in Isaiah 40:11 as the shepherd of Israel. And you can find this in Psalm 80, I think it is verse 1 as well, about God shepherding Israel. Jehovah Roweh, he is our shepherd. You know, it's a beautiful picture. He will lead his flock like a shepherd and gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom close to his heart and gently lead those with young. We're not shepherds much anymore, right? Anybody have any sheep? Anybody? You guys still have sheep? The Schaefers used to have sheep. And uh, they're just so cute, you know? And uh, when the little lammies are born, you know, they little stick legs and they kind of move along and sort of jerky motion and but they nurse while they're walking. I don't know if you knew that. But it, it, while the flock is moving, they're down there under mom, just making their way along and getting healthy. And the shepherd knows this. So when he's moving his flock, this last part of that verse is, he will gently lead those that are with young. He knows he has to slow the whole flock down so that he doesn't starve the little ones. Sometimes we get a little impatient about where the church is going or how fast it's moving and if God's given us new uh, Christians and new believers, then we have to slow down a little bit so they can grow along with us. Amen? And so he's the good shepherd, Jehovah Roweh. Number six, Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, uh, verses 5 and 6, and it's refrained again later in the book where it refers back to chapter 23 and it's stated again. God's actually a little upset with the shepherds of Israel. Not just those that kept sheep, but the leaders 
of the people. And he said, you've, you've hurt my people. You've scattered them all over. You're not good shepherds. And so what I'm going to do as God is I'm going to gather my people from all over the earth, wherever they've been scattered to. I'm going to bring them back, and I'm going to shepherd them. And uh, when I do that and I gather them, I'm going to give to them my righteousness. And it says in this verse that his name is going to be known, Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Now, I could zero in on the encounter group and just agree with you, and the rest of you just listen in. Listen, when God gives us his righteousness... It means that he lets us stand in his presence with the righteousness of his son imputed to us. It means that we are in absolute right standing with the Father because of what Jesus did. We will be held out of his presence if we believe the lie of the enemy that says we have to come in our own righteousness. And we spend a lot of time talking about the filthy rag. And Isaiah says all our righteousness is like filthy rags. That means on your best day when you show up in God's presence, say, here's my, here's my righteousness. I'd like to come into your presence. He goes, drop that thing in the trash, man. That is your best day. And we say, yes, Lord, that's my best day, and therefore I have no entrance into your presence. He says, let's do it this way. Let's go through the cross. Can we put that screen up? Um, I love letting the cross shine through. Amen? When we're done looking at pictures and stuff. I always think they're going to hook a wire there. (laughs) They're going to trick me one day. Up the wall I go. Jehovah Sidkenu, he imputes to us. That means he gives us, he over, puts us on us, his righteousness. And he says, the gates are wide open. Come on into the throne room. Be with me anytime you want. There's nothing to hold you out. Listen, sometimes we don't understand what we've got. I mean, you have absolute, unhindered access to the creator of the universe and to your Savior. How often do you go visit him? How often do you stop by? How often do you just stop? Hmm? We need to do it more, don't we? I'm not trying to condemn you. Come on, I'm talking to me. There are times when I feel like I should just stop what I'm doing, sit down, take my coat, pull it up over my... and just stop the world. You know? Pull the blinds. Say, God, you're not gone, are you? You say, you leave me? You never forsake me? You're right here? You know what's happening? And I'm getting overwhelmed by all this external stuff? Let me just close my eyes and get in here with you. Let me understand Jehovah Sidkenu. The Lord, our righteousness, who gives us access. The last one, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord who is there. Ezekiel 48, 35. And I'm not going to park there much just to say this. The Lord is there. And that's what I meant. He doesn't leave. He never forsakes. He hasn't forgotten you. He is there. He is with us. Now, I'm talking about how to know God. And this whole section, point number three, was about all these names of God because I believe we can know God through the revelation of who He is by who He has said He is. And in these moments, like with Gideon, I'm going to die. I've, I've been in the Lord's presence. I've seen Him face to face. We've talked now. It's been intimate. That means I'm going to die because I'm a sinful man. Isaiah. We went through this in the Truth Project. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and His glory and His train filled the temple. And Isaiah said, I'm a dead man. This is it. I'm an un- a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the people of unclean lips. It's over for me. And the coal off the altar touches his lips and says, This has made you clean, and you're not going to die. I'm making you righteous right now. Whew. Hey, move on. Whew. 
Know him by his names. And forever, I am. Moses says, God, uh, you want me to go down there to Egypt and tell them all these things, and you want me to do all this stuff with the, with the Pharaoh, uh, who shall I say sent me? Remember the story, Exodus chapter 3? And God says, just tell them I am sent you. Remember the other names? Self-existent, eternally existent, pre-existent, post He's going to be there forever. Just tell them I am sent you. John 8.58, Jesus says, uh, he's duking it out with the Jews again. They're wanting to kill him again. They're looking for stones. And they say, we're sons of Abraham. He says, you know what? Before Abraham was, I am. It took me a long time to get that sentence. As a new Christian, I thought, wait a minute, what does this mean? Before Abraham was, I am. Huh? Then I found it in the Moses passage. I went, oh. Before Abraham was, I am. Oh. I get it now. John chapter 10 Verse 30, Jesus says to the group standing there, says, My Father and I are one. That should pull a whole lot together right there in that little sentence. One little verse. My Father and I are one. God revealed himself in those 14 different names, and there are others. We didn't exhaust the list. There are others. He reveals himself all through the Old Testament. Jehovah Sidkenu, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah this. All these names. And then Jesus brings out the final card and lays it out and says, I and my Father are one. That means Jesus walking in the flesh. Listen, come on. Pool of Bethesda. Do you want to be healed? Yeah, but I'm lame. I can't. I've been laying here for years trying to get in the water. Somebody always beats me in. I can't get healed. He said, well, just take up your mat and walk. The guy's healed. Rolls up his mat. Starts walking off. Doesn't even know who Jesus is. Jehovah Rapha, right on the scene. God in the flesh. I and my Father are one. He's Jehovah Rapha. I am Jehovah Rapha. Jesus said, in the world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Right? My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. My peace I give. Jehovah Shalom. He and his Father are one. All those revelations of God in the Old Testament, Jesus standing in John chapter 5 says, Listen, you search the Scriptures, because in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. Oh, you can quote the seven compound names of God for Jehovah. You can teach others, but you don't know me. Listen, we're talking about knowing God this morning. Not just knowing his name. Not just knowing his description. If I was to stop and tell you about my friend Steve, Stephen Mortimer, we grew up together. He lived on the farm down the road. I'm an old farmer. Actually, I was only seven, so I wasn't that old. Anyway, we grew up riding our bikes together. And there was a mean dog that lived between us. And whenever we rode to each other's house, I mean, you had to get up your speed. And you'd always, I mean, it was a country road. And it was like 100 yards to the front porch. And the dog was always on the front porch. And you had to get up your speed to get halfway past the, the property before he spotted you. Because then you had a chance of outrunning him. This dog was fast. And if he got a hold of your pant leg, it was over. And uh, he did it plenty of times. And so we go into Steve's house. like One eye out the corner looking for the dog. Here he comes. 
It's amazing how fast you can get a bicycle going. You know, and he'd be and Steve on the other end cheering me on. Come on, come on, you can beat him, you can beat him. And the next day I said, next time you come to my house, and I'll cheer you on. Anyway, Steve was always faster than me. He had blonde hair and blue eyes, and he could run faster than me. He could jump faster, he could ride his bicycle faster. He had a big brother to play with my big brothers, and we enjoyed growing up together. And I went back a number of years later and sought him out, and he had a trampoline in his backyard, and we trampolined for a while together. And uh, he was a great guy. He was a real happy kid. And I liked being around him, and he was fair-skinned and and uh, a pretty obedient kid to his parents. And I could go on and tell you more about Stephen, and you'd like Stephen, wouldn't you? I mean, so far you got a pretty good picture of Stephen, but do you know Stephen? No. no, no, you don't know Stephen. I'm just telling you about Stephen. But you don't know Stephen. You know about him. And that's our challenge, isn't it? We talk about knowing God. We can know about him all day long. Best, best we could know him well enough, uh, maybe just to tell others all about him. The question is when you go home and you're by yourself, or even if you're in a group or you're in a cell, it should confront you, do I really know him? Paul the Apostle cried out in Philippians. He said, everything I've got on earth I just counted as loss. I mean, he had some credentials. He had some accumulated, uh, you know, he had a resume. He had uh, credentials and resumes and you know, he was born in the right tribe at the right time and on the right day and circumcised. And he was a Jew of Jews and, a, and a, he was a, a Pharisee and a teacher. And he had all this stuff. And he had about, I don't know, maybe 16 different credentials that he lists in that passage. And I, I did this one time. I preached a message. I put them all on pieces of paper. And I put all his credentials on the wall. I said, here's Paul's wall. All of his stuff. And Paul walks over to it and he pulls it all down. Just pulls it down. He says, I count all that loss. Just throw it away. What I need to do is I want to know Him. I want to know Him. Now this word know is, is not know in your head. It's not knowledge. It's not uh, memory verses and repeating the story and telling what somebody else told you. It's intimate. It's firsthand. It's personal. It's experiential. And that's the word I would go for. Do you have experiential knowledge? Of who he is. My goodness, I've only been to number three and I've got seven points. I'll give you the final four, five, six, seven. Just write down four, five, six, seven. There, you're done. Amen? You don't have to put anything behind him. Just kidding. <clears throat> Through practice of devotion. Moving beyond what we may know about him and knowing him. What we may know about him to knowing him. That is spending time with him. It's okay. I don't feel threatened. <laughs> you remember when you were younger? Some of her, you don't have to go back as far as some of us to remember the moment. Had that girl you kind of wanted to get to know, or that guy you kind of wanted to get to know? But you really didn't want to, you wanted to be discreet. You didn't want to tell anybody, really. You didn't want them to know. So what did you do? You went to your friends and said, hey, Listen, you know the, that girl and people she hangs around with. You guys are friends. I don't know her. I want to kind of get close. But I don't want to do it. On, you know, I don't want her to find out. I just want to get to know if I like to know her better. So could you guys set something up and I'll just sort of be there at the right time? None of you ever did this? <laughs> or the girl. Girls, oh, isn't he so cute? You know, he's 
I just got to get, I want to get by you. Let's, you know, some of those guys, why don't you say, let's go to this thing over to this place. You know, I'll go with you and he'll go with them and we'll just kind of be there. Set it up. Why? Well, you just wanted to get in the general proximity. You want to hear how they relate to life. You want to hear their voice. You want to see their mannerisms. You want just a little closer view so you can decide whether or not you really want to get to know them. Right? That's what we need. In personal devotion, what we're doing is we're getting close enough to know Jesus. There are times that, now, now listen carefully, don't take this wrong. There are times in our personal devotions when we need to say, okay, close this. Set it over. We know this is important. Not demeaning the scripture. This is one of the ways we know God. But we read and 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 we memorize and we learn the scriptures. There comes a time we need to set them aside and say, I need to hear his voice. I need to get just close enough to feel his presence. I need to worship and say, God, come into this moment with me and manifest your presence. Help me feel your heart. Uh, One of the ways that I know it, it touches me is when I say things like, God, help me see what you see. Help me feel what you feel. And I often end up sobbing because then I feel this heartbreaking for the world, for the lost, for all those he died for that don't know it yet. And I see their lost condition and the state they're in and the beautiful state that I'm in in fellowship with the Creator. And it begins to break my heart. And uh, there are other times when you just dance for joy. But it's not because I'm reading the Bible. It's because I've read the Bible. I've studied the Bible. I know the names of God. I know about Him. But now I say, I want to know. I want to get close enough. Let's set it up. So I can get in the same place at the same time. Number five is through self-denial. Matthew 16, 24 to 26. Jesus said it very clearly. There will come a point when you're following Jesus. He's going to stop Maybe just in the spirit, spin on his heel, look you in the eye or across the table. If you've got close enough to him at that little hamburger shop where you set up your meeting, where you're going to get to know him, cross the table a little bit. Down the, and I'm not with him. I'm just checking him out. And he's going to glance down the table like he did to his disciples. And he's going to say, hey, do you want to keep following me? And your heart's going to leap in your chest. And you say, I'm going to follow you. Yes. He says, then take up your cross. Deny yourself. And let's go. Peter, James, and John are fixing their nets. And Jesus comes along and says, follow me. What do they do? They drop their nets. This is their livelihood. This is their future. This is their posterity. It's their inheritance, everything. They drop their nets. And they follow Jesus. Self-denial is one way of knowing God. As long as you're holding on to all the stuff you think you need and all the, everything else of life that you're holding on to, there's not room enough left for you to open up your arm and embrace Jesus too. Then you have to deny self. And that's the challenge of discipleship. Are you willing to deny you? Or do you think you still want to be in charge all the time? Self-denial will get you a long ways ahead in knowing God. Number six, through shared experiences. And I think of ourselves like the disciples, when we get together in our cell groups and our small groups, there's a lot of interaction about shared experiences. Through shared experience number six, the two guys on the road to Emmaus, right? Jesus is crucified, buried. They're off on a walk. They're going to Emmaus. They're sad. Jesus comes alongside of them. It says he is shielded from them understanding or realizing who he is. And he says, what, why are you so downcast, guys? What's the problem? He said, well, are you the only guy that doesn't know what happened today? 
I mean, they just killed Christ, Messiah. We thought he was the one. We thought it was going to be, this was it. You know, all the scriptures that we had studied about eternal life and freedom and the Messiah, and it's all, I mean, it's over. They killed him. Really? As they're walking to Emmaus, and he begins to unfold the scripture, says he told them all about why it was necessary for him to die. And he took them through the scriptures as they walked. And they got to Emmaus, and uh, he said, well, you guys are stopping Emmaus. I'm going to keep on going. They said, no, 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 it's late, it's late. You shouldn't go off, off by yourself. Why don't you stay? Have something to eat with us. Shared experience. They sat down at the table. Jesus took the bread, gave the blessing, broke the bread. And in the breaking of bread, their eyes were open. They went, <gasps> and he vanished. Ain't God cool? <laughs> Whoa. Man, I mean, it just gives me the goosebumps thinking about some of these moments, you know. What a picnic bench to be on. <laughs> they looked at each other and said, what does the scripture say? In, in English it says, did not our hearts burn within us as he shared with us on the road? They had a shared experience about knowing God. And that's how it should be as we're walking. We don't walk alone. We're not independent. We're interdependent. I learn about God as you talk to me about what he's done in your life. You learn from me. In the cells, we share his life together. It's like, you know, when you come to a cell, you should always go to the cell when you're depressed. Always. When you're down, when you're hurting, when you're bleeding. You say, I'm going to the cell. They deserve it. (laughs) Amen. I put up with them in the good times. They're going to put up with me tonight. And just drag yourself across the threshold. And slither into the floor and lay there. No, they'll figure it out. They'll figure it out. They'll say, whoop, time for a shared experience. They'll lay hands on you, pray for you, mop you up, clean you up, band-aid you. Send you home feeling better. Don't not go when it's bad. That's the time to be there. Amen? Amen. Shared experiences. How about that 120 in the upper room? Think they had a shared experience? Waiting on God, praying, fasting, calling on heaven, and here comes the Holy Ghost. Day of Pentecost, everybody's speaking in tongues. Woo! Shared experience. They knew the same thing about God at the same time because they all had it happen at, the, at once. Powerful. Number seven, through a conscious closing of your eyes. How do you know God? Through a conscious closing of your eyes. And I think when I say eyes, I'm thinking of my spirit. Uh, you know, the, in, the, the gate, the eye gate. Not just a physical thing, but closing off specifically to the world and its distractions. Or maybe we should say its attractions. The things that keep you from intimacy with God. You know, getting interested in that little thing and that draws us away from fellowship. And I'm going to let you hear a, just a two and a half minute clip from Larry Stockstill that he was sharing in a message when I was in Baton Rouge last week at Bethany World Prayer Center. And he was talking about, his story was about Samson. So you'll hear him reference that in the clip. Um, but he's talking about a real, a real visual that he had about closing off your view of the world. Go ahead, guys. Got too big for him. I saw planet Earth, a little documentary on a cave in Indonesia. And in this cave, which is 1,500 feet deep, 
They sent a video crew down there. It was very difficult to get them down there. They had to use hang gliders and all kind of ways to get these, this equipment down to the bottom of this cave. And it was so dark in there, except for their camera lights. And on the roof of the cave, kind of like the ceiling of this church, there were lights, thousands of lights, little lights, right in the roof of this cave. It was the only light. It were beautiful. And the camera crews were filming and they saw these moths. They were on the base of the cave and the moths were attracted to the little lights. And they would flutter up to the roof of the cave. This is always in the dark normally. All they saw was the little lights. And when they got up there, what they could not see is that that was a silkworm attached to the roof of the cave. And hanging down beneath that silkworm was a piece of silk, maybe a foot or 18 inches long, kind of like a tentacle. And as the moth made its way investigating the light, he didn't even realize it when his wing had touched that silk. And when his wing touched the silk, he was stuck. He didn't even realize it. He kept flapping, he kept moving, but he was stuck. Because you'll never get that silk off the moth's wing. And then he would flap around and his other one would stick. And then his body would shake. And then his head would stick in his thorax. And then when he was really stuck, you see that little worm start pulling the thread up toward his mouth. An inch at a time. And the immobilized moth doesn't have any power to do anything about it. That's Samson. One wing at a time. He got a little too close. And then that moth goes into the mouth of that worm. And you hear it crunching. Now, I don't know how they got a microphone up there. But I just remember crunch. Crunch. And he ate that moth. Let me tell you, the devil ain't going to eat me. How about you? conscious closing of our eyes to those fatal attractions is another way of knowing God. Shut down the intake. Close in with Him. Father, this morning, I want to say, for all of us, I believe, we want to know You. Lord, I pray that You would help us to have the same cry as the Apostle Paul, who is a man just like us, same passions, similar problems. The Lord, He said everything could be counted as rubbish that we might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having our own righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ. Lord, that we might know You and the power of Your resurrection and the fellowship of Your sufferings. Jesus, would You continue to reveal to us who You are, who the Father is, when we catch a name, when we see a glimpse of the world and close our eyes to it, when we're in our devotions, we're in your word, expressing faith, then we deny ourselves and leave things behind and get into those moments where we have shared experiences that you, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us, alive and powerful. Let us begin to worship you like never before, giver of strength, God the highest, eternally existent one, self-existent strong one. God, be for us 
the self-existent, supreme commander of all the heavenly forces. And gather us to worship you often in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, I'd love this message and I'd love to go further, but it's time to be done. Amen. Kids Zone and 68 is looking at me like, what are you doing in here? Okay, go get your kids quick.